1: Hi everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Geography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Steven Siegel, the host of the channel. And today we'll be talking with Penny Sinanoglu, who is an associate professor of history at Wake Forest University. And Penny has a, a fascinating new book just out with the University of Chicago Press. It is called Partitioning Palestine: British Policy Making. At the End of Empire. Welcome to our podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So just a little bit about Professor Sinanoglu. She teaches British and European imperial and international history. Uh, She is the author of the book, as well as related articles and chapters in the historical journal, and in many edited volumes on 20th century partitions and the history of the British Empire in Palestine. Uh, Professor Sinanoglu is broadly interested in the intersections between British imperial power and international systems of oversight and governance, the role of ethnicity, religion, gender, and nationality in imperial politics, and the changing legal status of imperial subjects in the colonial and post-colonial eras. And she's currently writing a legal history of marriage in the 19th and 20th century British Empire. So let me start with a question about, um, if you could tell us, our audience of listeners, a little bit about yourself and what motivated you to write Partitioning Palestine.
2: Sure. Um, I I realize it's probably hard to believe, given how sort of hot and contentious the topic of um, Israel-Palestine is, but I actually came to this book project um, and ended up really wanting to write this book because I wanted to understand something about British imperial history. I realized that's, you know, a, an inversion for many people. Um, I mean, I realized that in the end, I hopefully also ended up saying something potentially interesting about the conflict, um, the sort of prehistory, um, or at least I hope maybe reframing it um, in some productive ways. But really my motivation um, was that I wanted to understand this territory as part of the British empire um, and understand something about British policy and the way it's made. Um, So, um, and this, I guess, tells you a little bit about me as well. Um, So it was sometime in my first semester of graduate school um, that I was reading a book about Ireland. I can't even remember really the specifics, um, but there was a footnote I came across and a sort of connection in that footnote that really intrigued me. Um, The footnote mentioned the fact that the head of the Royal Irish Constabulary, which was the armed police force that, among other things, was instrumental in putting down the Irish uprising um, that started in the middle of World War I, um, a man named Henry Hugh Tudor, um, he had also, as it turned out, headed up the Palestine Police Force. Um, and so some of the black and tans, right? These unemployed British ex-servicemen who had fought in world war one, um, and were then recruited into this special unit, um, fighting against Irish independence, went to Palestine to serve under, um, Tudor. And I sort of thought, well, that like, that's surprising. That was surprising to me, um, early on in graduate school. Um, Obviously, if I'd been, you know, any listeners who are familiar with Irish Republican music, they'll say like, yeah, there's a famous there's a pretty famous ballad um, by Dominic Behan um, about the Black and Tans role in both Ireland and Palestine. But I was not familiar with that music. Um, so this was a sort of intriguing connection to me. Um, so anyway, that footnote sort of got me thinking not so much about counterinsurgency, which there had been a good amount sort of written Um on the British military and counterinsurgency warfare, um, but in a really sort of different direction about partition. Um, And as a British imperial historian um, and somebody who'd actually come to British history via an undergraduate degree in Middle East and South Asian studies, I had some familiarity with the partition of India. And here was partition in Ireland. And then it was taking me quite literally, right, not via an intellectual analogy, but actually following the pathways of imperial actors to Palestine. Um, and so I ended up really wanting to understand why partition, right? Why did British officials sort of at various levels across the entire period of Britain's mandate in Palestine keep returning to partition? Um, but I came at it in this very sort of sideways on way.
1: Yeah. And, and I think I, one of the things that I really learned from your book is how you create this large continuum of, of dialogue about partitions and bring in the bengali history and the irish history could you talk a little bit about what what motivated you to create this long longer historical narrative and in other words not to just take the peel the peel commission in isolation
2: yeah i mean i think some of that just had to do with my training as an imperial historian and maybe this is a place where you know, and I, I talk about this a little bit in the book that the that the history, that sort of Middle Eastern history in general, but especially the history of Palestine has tended to be hived off from British imperial history. Um, and it's, um, you know, I, I, w- I guess I would say that p- sometimes because of language, um, but also because of the way fields are constructed, um, there's been less there's been less work that sort of thought about Palestine as an imperial territory and in that kind of imperial context. And I think as soon as you start doing that, you then want to place it in a longer historical trajectory, um, thinking about these connections to other places. I mean, what I guess what surprised me working on the project was how actually that jives with the careers of imperial officials, right? It's not an artificial construct. It's not an artificial intellectual construct to put Palestine in a British imperial context. The people who were working there were moving through imperial space. They were moving across imperial territories. They were borrowing ideas. They were sort of building their careers, not in Palestine alone, but across um, multiple territories. So that sort of made a sort of inherent sense to me, I guess, to to think about how this territory functioned in an imperial space, um, and I, I, I guess, I mean, one one sort of anecdote or set of anecdotes that I was thinking about um, was when I was doing research in Israel. Um, I was staying with family friends, and I I ended up. Um, in an elementary school carpool um, because the school was close to the archive. Uh-huh. So I would go in every morning. And what that meant was that I got a sort of rotating cast of parents who would say, like, what are you doing? Why are you going to this archive? Uh-huh. Um, right. And so I got to have conversations with just sort of different, a different person every few days. Um, and it was, you know, it sort of struck me how few people thought about contemporary Israel as having anything to do with the British Empire.
1: Right. Much less Ireland or India. Or
2: India. (laughs) Exactly.
1: Exactly. Well, so who who are the people then for our listeners in your gallery? Who are these career civil servants? I think almost all of them are men. Yes. Um, Yes. But what are their names? And can you give us like a kind of biography background to to some of your key players?
2: Sure. Um, Well, I'm going to I'm going to start with a with a sort of, in some ways, he seems to me very key, but nobody's ever heard of him, and he's not going to be um, some sort of recognizable name. Um, his name is Douglas Harris, um, and he was a uh, he. He had started off his career um, in India. Um, he ends up um, as a sort of commissioner on special duty um, and an irrigation advisor um, to the Palestine government. And this is not an uncommon move, right, to take somebody who has expertise in a particular area um, and particularly sort of around development and move them across the empire. Um, Sometimes they will actually move permanently. Um, Sometimes they'll be what's called seconded, right, where they're basically loaned out um, as a sort of traveling expert. Um, uh, So. So Douglas Harris is just this sort of fascinating character because if there's any, if there's any single person who carries this thread of partition through virtually the entire story that I tell, it's him. Um, and he, you know, he works up the first sort of pre-partition partition plan, a canton a cantonization plan um, in, in 1935, 36, um, and He you know, he's bringing expertise from India. He'd been um, part of a commission that had worked on the separation of Sindh from Bombay province. And that was a very complex um, set of negotiations in India It was quite bureaucratic, but it also had to do with ethnic um, and religious divisions and land. So he was sort of bringing that expertise along with his expertise on irrigation um, to Palestine and he's really devoted. I mean, it's interesting to see he's quite devoted to the idea of partition, and he will continue to be um, the sort of partition man um, uh, for Palestine right through the UN partition plan. So he's offering um, expert advice and reams and reams of paperwork and reports. Um, even once partition kind of moves out of British hands um, and over to the UN, um, so he's he's sort of one of the characters I think of as you know somebody nobody would have heard of, um, but who's really working very much behind the scenes.
1: Yeah, and and they are experts. So what what kind of training do they have? Is it linguistic training? What what are some of their principles and prejudices?
2: Yeah. Um, no, startlingly little linguistic training. I mean, that's what's that that's what's quite um, quite striking is just how few uh, members of a, of British administration in Palestine were conversational in Arabic or Hebrew. Um, uh, and and partially that's because of the way that the empire works that people are moving. Um, uh, there. There is less emphasis on linguistic proficiency and more on a kind of technical proficiency. Um, so um, they're getting, you know, they're getting on the ground training as district officers or subdistrict officers um, in, you know, basic sort of oversight of territory. Um, some of them, if they're focusing particularly on land and development, they will have some training and surveying um depending on on the sort of area that they're working on. Um, but this is remarkably, um, you know the the levels of expertise I would say outside of particularly questions of land, agricultural production, surveying, um, these are generalists, right? They're moving, mm-hmm. they're moving yes. from territory to territory. Um, and so that's one of the reasons why they start sort of thinking Across territories, because you take what you've learned from one place, you apply it somewhere else. Um, So there's there's another man, Archer Cust, um, who writes up uh, a Cantonization um, plan, and he's drawing analogies not just to India and Ireland, but really also to Africa, Um, and he's sort of saying, well, look, you know, we can think of the Think of the Jews as the sort of white settlers in Kenya and think of the Arabs like the Africans. Well, what are we doing in Kenya? We're setting up native land reserves to basically protect the natives from um, uh, sort of selling off their land against their own interests. Um, Why don't we do the same thing here? (laughs) Let's set up native land reserves.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and and I think Cust is a good example of that. You discuss him with Douglas Harris and Reginald Copeland um in in chapter one. I want to read a, a passage and, and ask you about this kind of knowledge transfer and, and it what you call analogy making. Which, as I understand it, seems to be the application of models or maybe even anti-models from one place into the empire where they may or may not fit in in another place. So um, when you talk about partition and cantonization in chapter one, uh, on page 29, early cantonization and partition plans in Palestine were in part the result of the movement of ideas and personnel Within easy mental reach, British officials in Palestine and London had recent examples of land sale restrictions based on race in Kenya, forced population transfer, the example of Greece and Turkey, and territorial divisions implemented to create politi- particular political outcomes, either by establishing more homogeneous constituencies, the example of Bengal, or by creating new states altogether the example of Ireland. And you write, they were also operating in a professional context in which experience gained in one territory, I love this, was deemed applicable to another and in which trans-territorial movement and thinking were actively encouraged. It is therefore unsurprising that in thinking about a way out of the Palestine problem, British officials turn For inspiration and direction to analogous situations and solutions outside Palestine. So it's interesting because so many academics. draw analogies as kind of like an, an end. <laughs> yeah. But you're actually studying the process. So maybe could you talk talk about what motivates you to do that do it? That? Sure.
2: Yeah. And and I think, you know, the 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 person sort of at the end of that trio, um, who's Reginald Copeland, who is a is an academic and, you know, what what his what his life sort of highlights is that you actually don't even need on the ground experience to draw these analogies. You can sit in your armchair and draw them. Um, um, And he, you know, he develops a different kind of expertise, right? A scholarly expertise about thinking um, sort of about um, multinational states and how they work. Um, uh, But yes, I think there's, you know, there's something um, about a sort of an imperial mindset. There's a certain kind of imperial arrogance, of course, at the root of this, which is, you know, this idea that, well, these places are much of a muchness, and you can, you know, you t- take an idea that works here, and surely it'll work there, um, and a sort of flattening out of the particularities of context. Um, but I think, you know, I think it it also it struck me early on when I started to see this constant analogy making that it's also a sign of a kind of mental flailing around. Um, you know, if 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 we can't, <laughs> we can't think our way out of this. Um, it doesn't. It seems like an intractable problem. Ah, what if we try this thing we've tried somewhere else? Um, so, so I think some of it is born out of desperation. I think some of it is also, you know, in some ways. I know this is a book about a particular territory, but I think it's also a little bit of an institutional history. Um, of the colonial service, right, and of the way in which, in particular, the colonial office works, which is this constant movement and constant um, sort of sometimes quite facile analogy making.
1: Yeah, and and that actually is is a good lead into my next question, because it, it is institutional, but it's also personal. And so you give many examples of the colonial office and all of their blueprints and all of their bureaucrats reacting to what Jewish agency representatives in Palestine are doing if they receive word that the cantonization may or may not go through so you know could you talk about say, that a little bit it's the, the intersection of the colonial office with both the Palestine government and the Jewish agency representatives
2: yes yes and i think um yeah it's it's important institutional histories are personal histories because institutions don't actually take actions. Um, it's the people inside of them, right? They're often sort of intensely built on personal connection and um, and sort of personal chemistry. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things that struck me is how consistent the cast of characters is over a fairly long time. Um, I mean, are Archer Cust is a little bit of an outlier because he he sort of violates some of the norms of the institution in as much as he keeps pressing his canto- cantonization proposals in public. Um, and that's seen as being potentially embarrassing to the colonial office. Um, so he's sort of shut out. Um, but the others remain, at, you know, some of the key players in the colonial office in London will be key players through this entire period. Somebody like Harris, as I said, is, um, it's kind of always present. And then on the Zionist side, I would say as well, there are a sort of a set of key players, key interlocutors, um, Weizmann, obviously the, the sort of, um, communicator par excellence, right. Anybody who works, you know, even if you don't do work on Palestine, but you Zionism in general, um, uh, He's, he's in constant communication um, through through letters, meetings, dinners, um, and and that's that's so important.
1: Yeah, Weizmann is, is so that I, I, the impression that emerges from your book, which is about the dialogue or and, and sometimes non dialogue between individuals, Weizmann, to me. Because he has these other proposals to the Italians, you know, he he is actually able to be a kind of communicator par excellence, where some some maybe lack the charm or lack the skill. Or, and you know, I, I wonder if, if now we could kind of move from the level of the colonial office and bureaucracy to the Jewish Arab um, dialogue or non-dialogue. What, what is it that Weizmann in Zionist circles is doing Doing well, maybe not doing right, but at least doing well vis-a-vis the colonial office.
2: Um, staying in constant in constant contact, always. I mean, it's it's interesting, right? There's a very there's a very sort of um, friendly rapport in some ways. Um, in other ways, we know um, from you know if you go into colonial office files, they sort of say, ah, oh, you know they're trying to get information. Um, It's clear. I mean, there's great frustration in the Palestine government and the colonial office. The Americans as well find this incredibly frustrating that there are constant leaks um, coming out of their offices in Palestine because the Jewish agency, um, many of the English speaking secretaries who were available locally were Jewish. Um, And so they're passing, uh, they're passing information back to the Jewish agency. So the Jewish agency is both kind of Engaging in, um, you know, outright diplomacy, constant dialogue, meetings, drop by somebody's office, uh, ask for a meeting, etc., and of course also behind the scenes, um, sometimes clandestine um, information gathering. Um, yeah. So yeah, one, one of the one of the sort of most exciting. I don't I don't think many um, imperial historians. You know, I, I don't think we do the kind of history that you see in a movie. But my only sort of movie moment from <laughs> um, from from archival research was being in the Central Zionist Archives um, and opening a folder, and and inside was a sort of one inch by two inch tiny um, photograph um, of the secret testimony um, of. Uh, a a chemical industrialist who had presented um, before the Peel commission. And it was clear just from the sort of context of the file that this testimony, which had been sent to him, you know, he'd been sent his own testimony to edit um, uh, that his secretary, his Jewish secretary had taken, um, you know, tiny, like with a, you know, camera pen um, uh, tiny photographs and that those had then been sent to, To sort of Zionist operatives, so that they would know what British um, sort of officials were hearing, Um, and that just yeah, they just they they put a premium on information.
1: Well, I would never, after reading your book and the giant histories of Stalin and Stalinism, under ever <laughs> underestimate the role of secretaries ever yes. again. Um, exactly. Um, and and, and Peel is a good example. I mean, he, his yes. personal secretary seems to wield a lot of clout. Yes. It, it is the information that get, gets passed to Lord yes. Peel and, and does not.
2: Yes, absolutely. And his I mean, his his personal secretary um, uh, who sends a uh, sort of sends a note and says, look, like, here's the inside intel on the members of the commission. You know, don't underestimate them. They may look sort of sleepy um, in that sort of Etonian with the. Um, with the monocle, um, but don't underestimate them, and you know here's how you should pitch things. So I think you know from from the Zionist side, um, one of the things that I took away from this is thinking about partition and partition planning as a decades long set of negotiations. And the advantage that the Zionists have is sort of personal connection, but also understanding the British imperial mindset right? And, and being able to speak a certain kind of British imperial language. Um, it's about rationality. Um, it's about problem solving. It's a, it's a particular kind of bureaucratic
0: language that they learn to speak very well. Um, this episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to Shopify.com/system all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's Shopify.com/system.
1: Yeah. So so let's move to the Palestine government. And in in analogy or comparison, in talking about labor and land issues through the 20s and 30s. So how. How did you research the the Palestine government, let's say? And you know, there are many instances where you've poured through just tomes and tomes of documents and you, you find a lack of evidence for for certain debates. So what so what happens with the Palestine government, let's say, by comparison, and, and how do they contact or not contact these career civil servants?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so one of the sort of interesting things I suppose about doing colonial era research in the post-colonial period is, you know, I I was thinking about this. Researchers' travel patterns, I think, tell you something, um, which is yes, there are a lot of files, there are a lot of relevant files um, in London, um, because they're often, you know, duplicates or there's some, you know, they're they facsimiles sent uh, back and forth. Um, but a fair amount of material got left behind. Um, so those those materials, actual Palestine government files, are in uh, the Israel state archives. Um, mm. Because, well, for a couple of reasons. Sometimes because they were abandoned in the chaos of withdrawing. Um, but other times, because there was a sort of an intention to transfer power to <laughs> who knows who, um, but the, the Zionists having the best um, sort of organization um, running, as I, as I said in the book, a sort of a shadow government through the entire mandatory period, inherit, in a lot of ways, um, the mantle of the Palestine government. And they also inherit literally the boxes of files. Um, So one of the things that I did over time was sort of bounce back and forth between Jerusalem and London, figuring out where the gaps were in London, where those files were in Jerusalem if they existed, um, and sort of piecing together um, the conversations that way. Um, And what, what struck me is... And this is this is something that I think my students, um, you know, when I teach British imperial history, find sort of surprising. But maybe we shouldn't. Um, is how much discord there is within this sort of category that we call British, right? That there's mm. not
1: yes yes
2: there's not a uniform um, approach to Palestine that you can say sort of applies from the lowest, you know, assistant district officer right up through. Um, kind of high-ranking politicians or career civil servants in London. Um, There's actually, you know, there's tremendous sort of fragmentation and fracture. Um, And that was one of the things that I really wanted to recover in the book, but it was also one of the things that I couldn't help seeing as I was moving across these different archives, Um, because there's, you know, there's is a way in which the men on the spot, right, the men who are actually in Palestine doing the daily work, kind of moving through their districts, have just a completely different picture of what Palestine is, um, what the Arabs and Jews want, and realizing that even there is not a monolithic Arab position. There is not a monolithic Jewish position. Um, so they're they're seeing things with much less of a bird's eye view. And that actually makes it harder for them to engage in this kind of abstract partition planning.
1: Yeah. And and I think actually, um, and this is one of the similarities I find with your work and Susan Peterson's, I'm, I'm astounded looking at the secrecy or understanding the secrecy in the private papers by the amount of internal discord there is between these men but also these personalities with such with such um differences between them so even when you find a kind of imaginary consensus on paper. And, you know, when you real when you, when, if you can talk about this, when you read through the Peel Commission's reports, there's a section of the Peel Commission that everybody reads, and then they, they take it to mean, aha, well, this is the reaction to the Arab revolt in 1936. But you actually, what's really interesting, plumb the depths and start, um, if you will, peeling apart the Peel Commission. Um, <laughs> and, and, yeah. Yeah. To try and figure out what what has happened in conversation, and what evidence might be might be private. So that that's the tenor of my next question. Um, what are some of the differences between these figures, and and then how do you treat this? Um, what you call in com- in camera evidence, the evidence from the rooms.
2: Um, so, and that's that's a really sort of um, interesting story. I think the. You know, one of the things that I was most intrigued by, I had little pieces of um, this in-camera sort of private evidence um, because fragments had remained in individuals' personal archives or in um, the sort of like the Central Zionist archive, the little photograph that I talked about. Um, as it happens, those um, the the sort of printed. Uh, private evidence um, didn't make it. It was held out of the national archives of the UK until too late for me to um, use it in the book. Um, And so I had this sort of interesting moment um, where I thought, wow, I wonder if that, that secret evidence, that private evidence um, really would have fundamentally changed how I see this. I think I had enough of it um, from the few bits and pieces that were in personal archives to get a sense of the tone, which was just more, you know, it was more Frank um, in, in sort of expressing, frankly, racism um, uh, on the part of, of British actors. Um, And I think the, the, the kind of behind the scenes evidence that I found most intriguing were the conversations between the Peel commissioners um, and the way in which they, you know, it actually transpires that they disagreed with each other. um, And that, you know, that uh, Reginald Copeland in particular was seen by some of his fellow commissioners as having been very aggressive um, in pushing through partition. Um, And that, like, that sort of struck me because it's so at odds with what you see in the report itself um, it's fairly at odds with what you see in the printed public evidence. Um, and, you know, from, from what I've seen, it's also at odds with what you see in the private evidence that the commissioners, you know, they sort of maintained a facade in these public, um, outings of, of consensus, or, or at least they weren't airing their dirty laundry. Um, but the, but the few, um, minutes that we have, right, the the sort of uh, recordings of uh, some of their meetings um, in Hell One, and then some of the letters, the personal letters that we have back to families give you a glimpse of, um, and anybody who's ever sat on a committee should not be surprised by this,
1: right? Yes, <laughs> so waste the wasting of hours. Um, yes, yes. Right. And, and
2: the tremendous kind of toll um, that all of this work took on them, um, but also simply that the fact that they saw things differently. Yeah. Um, uh Copeland was really sold on partition because I think um, it it had a kind of elegance to him that you know that appealed to him as as an as an academic as an intellectual, um, and it just it just didn't jive as well with with some of his fellow commissioners.
1: Do you think that's why? And, and you write about this in your chapter three. Mm-hmm. Copeland avoids direct contact with Zionist leaders because he seems to be already convinced of of the of the necessity of partition. It w- or, I mean, how do you uncover their motives?
2: Yeah, so i I think that um, you know one of one of the ways I tried to sort of think about motives um, was to track how those ideas. Sh- shift and change. um, And that Copeland seems to go from a sort of optimism drawn from his work on Canada. um, And, you know, he sort of says, well, look, you know, there are other places in the British Empire where multiple nationalities coexist. um, And they do just fine. Um, And then, you know, towards the end, he's basically been convinced that this is not working. Now, I think, I think that some of that comes down to his being a a sort of good, fairly diligent social scientist. Um, He's Mm. read a tremendous amount. He's absorbed, you know, there's Palestine produces an incredible amount of paperwork, right? So there's both the paperwork that's going to the Palestine government and through the Palestine government and going to the Peel Commission. But the commissioners also have access to all of the paperwork that's gone to the Permanent Mandates Commission of the League, and that's voluminous, and it basically tells a story of discord from fairly early on, um, and I think he takes a sort of social scientific approach and says, "Well, look, this isn't this isn't working," um, uh, which is not a terribly popular
1: approach at that point. Right. I mean, could could you talk about the League of Nations and and where where that fits into? not just the Peel Commission report, but this internationalization of paper, paperwork report drudgery.
2: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think, again, one of the things that struck me fairly early on in this project was how much had been written on Palestine that not only didn't engage with the League, but actually didn't mention that this was a League of Nations mandate at all. Um, as if that was completely immaterial to understanding what was going on. Um, and, you know, given given the amount of paperwork, given the amount of conversation that goes on about Palestine um, in Geneva, that seemed an odd sort of omission. So part, I think part of what I was trying to do in this book was reframe Palestine and sort of say, look, this is, it's a, It's a British imperial territory, but it's a weird British imperial territory, right? It's not your average colony um, because your average colony, you don't have to write a sort of public report to some outside watchdog um, every year. You don't have to send representatives to answer questions as the British did in Geneva. Um, And what we know is that they really didn't like this. Um, there's, you know, there's a lot of grumbling in the colonial office um, and people sort of saying, Oh, please don't send me to Geneva this year. I don't want to, you know, they, they always ask the most difficult questions. Um, so I think, you know, I basically see the conversations that are happening in Geneva as partially setting the terms of discussion and the terms of debate, but they're also kind of constraining at various points British options. Um, you know, of course the British have, there is the possibility to just completely break with the Permanent Mandates Commission's interpretation of what's going on in Palestine, but that has a cost, right? That has a political cost. Um, And so the existence of an outside body, the existence of that kind of publicity, um, I see that kind of nudging the British both towards partition and then sometimes away from it as well. Um, so I don't think it's a uniform force, but it's an important one.
1: Yeah. And, and I wanted actually to pursue this a little bit because it, I, I mean, what I find in your work and, and the work of, of Lucy Chester on the Radcliffe line it is what is coloring the perception from the British imperial perspective is very often or maybe more often than not the perception of a loss of prestige. So it the, and and it's a it's not just something that's happening in the UK, it's actually a worldwide thing. Um and and the British civil civil servants, military official are, are perfectly aware of this. I'm just wondering if there's a there's a moment of rupture. I mean, you have so you have so much continuity in talking about the prehistory and pre-prehistory of the Peel report and then moving it all the way up until 1947 and 1948. But is is there any particular moment, let's say, where it, it, it suddenly realized that cantonization won't work or that partition is a favorable option? I mean, what... What what is it? What is it ultimately? I guess this is the sort of so-what political science question. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah.
1: And 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 you're a historian and that that's I am okay. too. <laughs> but but like what's the what's the moment when things actually change?
2: Yeah. Um that's a great question. I think I mean what surprised me is how things just keep not changing until really the very end. I mean, I would say there's the the, the sort of breaking moment um is february of nineteen forty seven when the British say We can't do this right what no, we can't we we can't hold on to this territory we can't partition it, we can't not partition it like we're done um it's somebody else's problem um and you know that's that's really late you would think there there are sort of there are moments where if you're reading the history forward, it looks like there's been a breaking point. I mean, the sort of obvious one, I guess, is, is 1939 um, and the issuing of the white paper in May. Um, and, you know, that's a moment where I at least, you know, having tracked the sort of conversations with the Permanent Mandates Commission in Geneva um, and then sort of what's going on on the British side, that's a moment where I see a pretty sharp divergence, right? Um, where... British, you know, the statement of intended policy runs pretty much counter to um, what the Permanent Mandates Commission is saying about Palestine. Um, Now, you know, as it happens, that then gets repaired because the British sort of walk back their... They walk back their policies, and they return again to partition. I mean, partition just keeps coming up over and over again, even when you think it's been killed off. Um, you know, you think it's been killed off in thirty-seven. It keeps, you know, it emerges again in forty-three and forty-six. Um, so I think the I think the breaking point actually comes not so much conceptually as materially, um, and by that I mean that Britain reaches a place by 47 where it is clear that actually implementing policy is going to be so expensive. And I mean that really in cash terms, um, in terms of, you know, men, um, military power, they simply don't have the ability to do that.
1: Yeah. Uh, I, I can definitely see that. And you, you wrap it up really nicely in your conclusion when you, when you talk about the, uh, the White Report, moving from nineteen, the White Paper, excuse me, from nineteen thirty nine to nineteen forty seven. Um, I, I wanted to ask a question. I'll read read part of your conclusion here about the, about the future after nineteen forty seven and nineteen forty eight, and why, at least from your monograph, um, historians have failed to pay attention to this longer prehistory before nineteen thirty six. So it, it, this is really an an after-1947-48 question and a before 1936. you write in the conclusion on page 156, in the transition from British to UN oversight of Palestine policy, much of the specific imperial calculus attached to partition was naturally stripped away, but underlying assumptions about Arab and Jewish ethno-nationalism and sovereignty and about the legitimacy of imposing territorial separation remained. The partition proposal put forward by the UN Special Committee on Palestine, Palestine in 47 did not follow earlier British plans in reserving land and a political role for Britain. Yet, in the UN's eventual turn to partition and in some key features of its partition plan, we can see the hallmark of partition's origins as a British imperial power. And here's a sentence that really struck me. The very notion of partition was shot through with imperial prerogatives to draw borders, assign sovereignty, retain areas, shift populations, and set timeframes for political independence. And these remained even after partition shifted from the explicitly imperial to the international arena.
2: Yeah, <laughs> I guess that's. I mean, that's me somewhat overstepping my expertise, but I do think that um, that you know, and and others have written about this. I think really well, um, uh, you know, about the the sort of imp- the ways in which international organizations and imperial powers weren't so much in opposition to each other in the interwar period, although sometimes it looks like that on the surface but that they're actually completely intertwined, right? Um, that, you know, that the League of Nations, but that also the United Nations, they are they are created to serve the interests of the great powers of, and many of those powers are imperial powers. Um, and so, you know, in some ways I sort of look at this and I think, well, this is not a terribly innovative, terribly surprising things to, thing to say that the UN, okay, it's not, pursuing specifically British interests in, in the way that the British were. Um, but it is, you know, it's completely shaped by an imperial mindset. Um, and yeah, there there is a kind of, I mean, not a kind of, there is an arrogance in drawing lines in shifting populations. Um, I think it's important to remember that the Peel partition plan uh, didn't simply sort of set out to divide palestine it also set out to forcibly move about a quarter of a million arabs um so there's there's a kind of a logic that it it's almost it doesn't get picked up necessarily in a um in an intentional way it's it's built into the structures of these organizations it's the kind of language that they use it's the kind of rationale that they
1: use yeah and and so what's the alternative? Um, is, is the alternative irony and satire? I mean, you have <laughs> you have this this um, map, yeah. this it really infamous map by Charles Tigger, the D plan of partition toward the end, with this space free for advertising. It's a brilliant yeah. map and and really one of my favorites.
2: Yeah, mine too. <laughs>
1: Um, Mine too. After crying through all of your book about you know the the failure the failures of plans and 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 what what ends up being forcible relocations, I mean, is this the sort of default where we just have to kind of throw up our hands and laugh at it?
2: Well, it's I mean it's 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 interesting because and I really sort of struggled with this map for a long time from when I first you know when I first saw it in the archive and sort of really thinking it through over several years. Um, and I think in some ways this is actually like a very deeply Imperial map. And it's saying, Absolutely. this is the alternative. The alternative is a big joke. It's, it's a bunch of tiny little statelets all smashed up together. Um, the alternative is um, as, as you see on the, on the sort of Eastern side of this map, German and Italian spheres of influence. So you know this this map is basically saying yeah of course the imperial has to continue um i think tegert obviously would have wished the british imperial to continue um but you know i think the you know the united nations again although it doesn't pursue specifically british imperial objectives um Neither does it particularly stymie them, um, and so yeah, I think I think somebody like like Teigert is going to look to these international organizations as a source of stability, um, as a source of control, um, as as kind of maintaining the imperial status quo in a post imperial world. So for me, what was interesting about this, and and you know, really going back to your question of like where's that breaking point is thinking about the breaking point and what changes and you know obviously this is a tremendous change it's a huge change for the people who live in this territory for the people who flee this territory um, it's it's a change for britain in a lot of ways um, but and maybe i'm a continuity person more than i'm a rupture person but i also think about the tremendous continuities um, you know the the sort of the access to um the resources that britain was most interested in, um, whether that's oil shipping, airfields, um, that, that actually, that actually continues. And so in a way, you know, I, I think some of the things that I thought about in the conclusion were where we, where we draw a line of decolonization, right? There's formal, there's formal handover, you know, you take down the flag. Um, that's one form of decolonization, um, but there's another way in which I think we can see the colonial kind of continuing into the post colonial period
1: yeah and and you even talk about the how he draws the spaces and yeah. they even though they're as you say square oval, triangular, and banded, they're still neat and rectangular <laughs> in that in that wonderful imperial right angle way, yeah. Um, yeah. So it, it's an absurdist map, but it, I would not describe it as counter hegemonic. It, it, right. really, it really does trace all the way back to the imperial shuffling of papers. Yeah. So um, wonderful. I, and I have to ask now, what are you what are you interested in? What are you writing on? What is your current research about?
2: Um, so, in some ways, I think, at least on the surface, I think what I'm working on right now appears to have absolutely nothing to do um, with, you know, everything we've just discussed. Um, it's as, as you said in the introduction, a, a legal history um, of marriage in the British Empire from the mid 19th to about the mid 20th century. Um, and what I'm, what I'm sort of setting out to do is answer the question of how the immense variety. Of marital practices, uh, polygamy, child marriage, cousin marriage, um, different kinds of divorce, etc., that were legal in some parts of the British Empire and not in others, right, were dealt with as people moved or sought to move um, across British imperial space. So, um, you know, I, I always think of this quote um, from an article in the Fortnightly Review in 1907, where somebody sort of complained. And here I'm quoting: A man may be divorced in Calcutta and return to find himself married to the divorced wife in London. Um, <laughs> um, so, so you know that's I'm I'm you know I'm thinking um, about imperial space. So I I would say beneath the surface I think this the my new project has a lot in common with the work that I've done on Palestine because really what I'm digging into is some intersection of space. Right. And mapping, whether it's literal or (laughs) metaphorical Um, and how imperial power works and breaks down in space and across space. Right. So, you know, if I had to if I had to figure out what my continuity is, that's it. Um, The rupture is that I'm that I'm sort of moving far away from Palestine, that it's much you know, it's a much more broadly imperial project. Um, so I haven't, I haven't sort of stayed in the in the Middle East. I haven't stayed in the Palestine um, mold. But I guess you know, even in in some ways, what I'm trying to get at in the current project is what an empire is. Um, and clearly, in this particular case, you know, when when we're talking about marriage and divorce, it's not about imposing legal uniformity or consistency or regularity. A lot of the things I think we sometimes associate with the legal systems of empires. Um, here it's here it's actually about kind of juridical fragmentation. Um, and you know, marriage and divorce are not just things that dictate family life. They're also, you know, they're they're contracts that relate to property, business relations, mobility, nationality, you know, wealth transfers, all sorts of things. So I think you know what I've been surprised by. What I find surprises people when I sort of tell them what I'm working on um, is this idea that, at least in the case of the British Empire, something seemingly so fundamental— you married or you not married—is so unstable, right? Um, And so it's that kind of instability that I'm interested in because I think it gives us insight into the challenges that empires face, but also. Kind of the way in which the British Empire uses that instability as flexibility, and that flexibility, I think, is is also a source of imperial strength.
1: That's um, a great question. the, the sense yes. of ang- the sense of anxiety, I think, yes. it is often interpreted as weakness, but it, it often but it's not leads yeah. to to greater maneuvering, right?
2: Yes, yes, yes. So that's that's what I'm working on.
1: Well, I, I we have been listening uh, here together on the New Books Network and New Books in Geography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network, to Penny Sinanoglu, professor at Wake Forest University. She is the author of Partitioning Palestine, British Policymaking at the End of Empire. Fantastic book just out with maps at the University of Chicago Press. I want to thank Penny Sinanoglu for joining us on the podcast today.
2: Thank you so much for having me, Stephen.